<laughs> oh, okay. One more belly laugh. All right, we're good to go. All right, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Right, here we go. Here we go. All right, we are rolling, brother. How We're you rolling. doing this afternoon? We are rolling. Oh, Dude, I am covered in sawdust. I am sweaty, and I am bone tired. We're awesome. buying a building. We're moving the practice, and I've been building Kelsey, my office manager. I've been building her a new reception desk, and I got done with that and cleaned up real quick, grabbed my computer, and came up here so we could do this tonight. Well, some people would think after having a long, hard day like you've just had, you need a glass of alcohol, of nice wine, <laughs> maybe even a beer. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe even a little tati to help you go to bed tonight. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways now, to look at this. Now, that's one thing that I want to clarify. In the last episode, whenever we talked about the kind of wine that Jesus made, I had mentioned that I had not drank alcohol in years, and I need to clarify that. I did have some not long ago, about a year ago, my wife and I both had a cough that would not go away. And it was at the point where we couldn't sleep at all. So I went and bought a bottle of bourbon and I made a hot toddy, made hot water, lemon juice, tablespoon of honey and two capfuls of bourbon. And I made one for me, made one for Kim and we both slept like the dead and didn't have a cough the next day at all. <laughs> so... I got to clarify, yeah, that's the al- that's the only amount of alcohol that I have consumed at all and in, in the last few years. Well, and talking about Christianity and alcohol, which is what this episode's about, if you did not get to listen to our last episode where we discuss what kind of wine Jesus made, was it alcoholic or was it non-alcoholic, we are not going to be discussing that in this episode because we dedicated a whole episode to it prior, so you can check that out. But we did discuss how... Uh, Lee nor myself, neither one of us drink alcohol, drinks alcoholic wine or, or, or alcohol, period, um, socially or, or I guess you could say for municipal purposes, as Lee just pointed out. But um, I don't even do it for that reason. I guess cough, cough syrup is probably the closest thing I get to it. But uh, I personally don't drink. I never, never have. Um, I have tried a few sips from time to time, and it was absolutely disgusting. And I wonder why anybody <laughs> drinks it. Uh, in fact, there was this was we were at Gatlinburg in Tennessee, and you know they have these whiskey shops everywhere, and they'll have a hundred different kinds of of moonshine, different flavors that you can try, and it'll be for free. And it is it is pretty humorous because people just line up getting their free shots of of the different flavors, just saying that they can test it. It's kind of like when you go to an ice cream shop and you want to know what kind of flavor, they'll give you a little sample. It's kind of the same deal. Well, nobody's really buying any bottles. They just keep trying samples. And uh, <laughs> But I, I was very tempted to just try it. But man, the smell, I couldn't even stomach the smell when we walked in there. I'm like, oh, this is this is just it's nasty. So yeah, um, it'll, it'll I, get to you after a while. But so, I, I, I want to cut in and I have one thing that I want to say before we move forward with this, before we just dive into the meat of it. And that is, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding at all about what we are going to say or about what we are promoting, what we are going to be discussing. 
there are some people, regardless of what the biblical perspective is on alcohol and abstention from it or drinking in moderation or whatever else, there are some people who are prone to addiction. There are some people, alcoholics namely, who should refrain from it completely. And I just want to make that really, really clear. I know people that are alcoholics. I know people that have been down that road. I have some alcoholics in my family and not immediate family. It's not like Seth at five years old, likes to tie one on every night before he goes to bed. But um, I do know people that are alcoholics and part of recovery from that is total and complete abstention from all alcohol. So with whatever the biblical case is, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I don't want anyone to listen to this podcast and say, oh, well, the Bible says I can drink in moderation. So I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and drink again. No, if that is a struggle that you have had, if that is something that you're fighting and something that you're facing, you're better off abstaining from it. And personally, my opinion, even today is that Christians are better off abstaining from it. I really don't think there's any real reason for a Christian to drink, period. I think that abstention is the best policy, and I think that it's fine. But even at one point in time, I would have said that it's absolutely a sin to drink alcohol at all, even in moderation, unless it was for medicinal purposes. And I'd I would imagine, Kevin, as legalistic as you used to be and as hardline as you used to be, you probably viewed alcohol in that same light. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. I I was to the point where I doubted whether or not I should be even going to a restaurant if it served alcohol. And a couple of the main resources that really influenced my understanding at the time, and and once again, I'm going to use another pun here, um, I was under the influence of a couple of books. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, like that substance to be well if you weren't listening to the last episode i put in a little punny there so trying to be creative in my in my little jokes but I, I guess you could say i was under the influence of a couple of resources one of them is a wd jeff Coates book which is the bible and social drinking and then another one that uh, it's it's a lot smaller book this next one was just called bible wines by William Patton, and you can get both of those sources to this day. And and I encourage you, if this is something you're studying, please pick up those sources because it's going to explain why they believe you should not drink alcoholic wine for any reason other than if, if there was some sort of medical exemption or, uh, you know, may, maybe in that case, uh, you could you could be exempted from the, the law of, of no drink for any reason. But other than that, uh, you, you can't be drinking at all. And so I always encourage people to study different sources because we are not trying to hide anything. We want people to look at alternative understandings and come to their own conclusions based upon their own conviction. And at the time, that was my conviction that it was wrong to drink alcohol at all. But the more I studied and the more I was challenged on this topic, I was just no longer convinced by their traditional arguments. And once again, it's not because I wanted to drink. I don't drink. I don't have any desire to drink, nor do I, nor, nor will I probably ever drink in my life. But I started to realize that the arguments that I had used to condemn it flat out were just inconsistent. They were not good arguments. The arguments were more about drunkenness than they were about drinking wine in moderation. And so, Lee, tell us a little bit about the Greek and, and Hebrew words. I mean, I know there's a lot there we could discuss, but just kind of summarize the Greek and Hebrew words that are predominantly used in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Septuagint, to refer to alcoholic content. 
Well, there's 10 Hebrew words at least for wine in the Old Testament. And then there are some other words that within that set of 10 words that reference strong drink. And that those are different words and they tend to reference different things. There are five Greek words for wine in the New Testament. And a lot of those words overlap in their meaning, especially whenever you compare the Hebrew to the Greek. And you especially see that in the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, that Greek word oinos is the most common word translated as wine in the New Testament and in the Septuagint. And the Hebrew word yein is, and that's how I pronounce it. I don't know if I'm saying it right or not. That's the most common word that's translated for wine in the Old Testament. Now, both oinos and yein predominantly refer to alcoholic wine. Now, there are exceptions to that, and we talked about that in the last podcast. There are exceptions to how oinos can refer to non-alcohol, non-alcoholic wine, but the that situation is explained, and from the context, it's obvious. Now, the common and dominant use of those terms refers to alcoholic wine. It refers to the consumption of alcohol, especially whenever you look at the terms rendered strong drink in the Old Testament. And most people, when they go to the Bible, if they've not really heard arguments against social drinking— just automatically assume drinking is okay as long as you don't get drunk. This this is because of just a straightforward reading of the Bible. If you just pick up the Bible, you see that over and over again, the Bible condemns drunkenness. But never does the Bible actually condemn drinking alcohol. It only teaches against and instructs you not to get drunk. But there are some arguments that I know both you and I used to use and arguments that people still use today that we just want to address in today's podcast to try to be as fair and honest with these as possible, but also to look at reasons why we personally do not believe that they really just have much strength to them. So the Bible clearly outlines drunkenness as a sin. I've just said that a moment ago. Lee talked about that at the beginning. What this podcast is not trying to do is create a bunch of drunkards. That's not what we're trying to do throughout this. Romans 13, 13, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 4, 3, Ephesians 5, 18. We understand clearly the Bible says that a Christian should not get drunk. That's not... In, that is not in harmony with Christ-like behavior. But some have argued that the process of getting drunk in and of itself is a sin. And, and they, one of the reasons is because in Ephesians 5.18, the present tense there is used. And people believe that when the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, that you can make the argument that Paul is saying, do not even be in the process of getting drunk. Don't even begin. Don't even start. You shouldn't even be in the process of of getting drunk. And of course, I would agree that someone should not be getting uh, or should not be in the process of getting drunk any more than someone should be in the process of overeating. But just because you have to eat in order to overeat does not mean you are in the process of overeating simply by eating. And in the same way, it's true that you must drink alcohol in order to be in the process of getting drunk, but that does not mean just because you are drinking alcohol that you are in the process of getting drunk. So really this whole idea of don't be in the process of getting drunk argument really falls flat because it's extremely inconsistent because here the Bible is speaking to intent 
when it comes to the idea of drunkenness. And so, Lee, explain to us a little bit, too, kind of about just the whole process of drunkenness and why this argument is is highly inconsistent when we do apply it. Well, even the first time I ever heard this argument used, this is an argument whenever I would preach about the dangers of alcohol, I wouldn't use this argument. And the first time that I heard it used, I just thought to myself, that's that's that just seems like crazy talk to me because like you said, it gets to at, at its root, it has to do with the intent. And a lot of times we say, well, intent doesn't matter. It's just the, con- well, a lot of people say we don't say it anymore. Maybe you used to, I know I used to, that intent really doesn't matter, you know, but the process of getting drunk or getting drunk is a process. The first issue that I had with this argument is, you know, Paul admonished Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now, don't, drink only water, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And everyone recognizes that that is scriptural authorization for the consumption of the consumption of alcohol for medicinal purposes. Well, the one drink drunk argument, or this idea of drunkenness as a process has something to the effect of that. If it takes you three beers to get drunk and you drink one beer, then you're one third drunk. Or if you take one drink, one sip of alcohol, you're one sip drunk. Okay. Well, if taking you know, the two tablespoons or the two capfuls rather of uh, the two capfuls of the bourbon that I put in that hot toddy that I had before bed. Is that getting me one drink drunk? Am I one drink drunk at that point? What's the difference between using it medicinally versus drinking it socially or drinking it um, recreationally? Well, and even, even when you, even when you parallel it to food, you know, I, this would be the same as arguing that if it takes three plates for you to overeat and you eat one plate, then are you one third guilty of overeating? Uh, you know, are, are there, there's no definitive line that can be clearly established when someone has eaten until they are full versus when they have stepped over the line of overeating. And that's what's interesting. This And this is the same argument I used to use prior when it came to alcohol. Is I'd say, well, since you don't really know exactly the precise moment when you become drunk, the only way you can truly not ever be drunk and know with certainty is by not drinking at all. But when I saw this argument and someone brought this to my attention about overeating, they said, well, do you believe that it's a sin to overeat when you're losing self-control? And I said, well, of course. And they said, well, at what point are, are you are you there? Or at what, you know, at what bite can you say, if I take one more bite, now technically I'm over that line? Well, nobody knows that. No, nobody can can get to that point. And so... This, as you brought up, this has to do with intent, you know, and, and, and by the way, the word glutton, as we understand it today, does not just simply mean overeating. When you look at what they did historically, a lot of these parties, especially in the Greco-Roman cultures, they would eat to the point of getting themselves so full, they wanted to keep eating. And so they would actually go and there would be a kind of like a community feather that people would take and put down their, um, their throat so that they would throw up and it would clear their stomach so they could go back and eat more. And that really encompassed this whole idea of, of true gluttony. But anyway, the point being is that, you know, at what point do we draw the line? Well, their answer is we really don't know exactly where all these lines are drawn. So that doesn't mean that we can no longer eat food anymore, right? Yeah. At least I hope not. Well, people, well, the thing is, is this whole line of reasoning leads to some really absurd conclusions. This idea of being one drink drunk. And it led to uh, an article that, that a good friend of mine wrote, and I love this guy. I respect him immensely. He's one of the 
best people that I know. I mean, he's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And he wrote an article about kombucha. And he wrote this article about how kombucha is an alcoholic beverage because it's a fermented tea. Now, if you don't know what kombucha is and you're listening, um, kombucha is a fermented tea that is rich in probiotics. It's really good for digestive health. It's really good at reestablishing a a healthy microbiome within your gut and within your intestines. Um, Yogurt has a lot of the same bacterium in it, a lot of these beneficial um, things and stuff that helps you be healthy. Well, because kombucha is fermented, it's about 0.3% alcohol by volume. And his entire point was, is that if you drink alcohol and you're one drink drunk, well, you're, you started the process of drunkenness and you're violating Ephesians five. The same thing with kombucha. If you drink kombucha, you're one drink drunk and you're violating Ephesians five eighteen. So a Christian has no business drinking kombucha. And when I saw this, you know, and they say you don't need to get into arguments on Facebook because it's, it's completely fruitless. When I saw this, I thought that's bananas. That's absolutely bananas because the way alcohol metabolism works, and I'm going to geek out a little bit on you right now, but the way that your body metabolizes alcohol, alcohol itself doesn't lead to intoxication. It's the accumulation of alcohol beyond what your body can process that does it. So if you have alcohol that builds up in your system, then you will become intoxicated. But if you consume minute qualities of alcohol, your body metabolizes it faster than it can accumulate. There's a certain volume that you have to consume in order for that alcohol to accumulate. It has to overwhelm your body's ability to process it. And I, you know, I'm thinking about getting into the biochemistry with that, but we're running long on time now as it is. So I'm not going to get into all that with the GABA receptors and the acetaldehyde and all that nonsense. But in any case, there is no physically possible way that you could drink enough kombucha to ever get even a light buzz. There's no way it would happen. You would make yourself sick. You would, you would puke all over the place. You wouldn't even need a feather to shove down your throat to make it happen. But this idea, whenever it's so rigidly applied of one drink drunk, this is the conclusion that you have to come to. And it's a conclusion that makes no sense even bio even biochemically, it doesn't make any sense because in order to start the process of getting drunk, alcohol has to accumulate within your system. If alcohol never accumulates within your system, well, then you don't start that process. And if something doesn't have enough alcohol for you to consume to the point where accumulation occurs, that process never begins in the first place. But yet we're going to have people that hold on to this idea and this ideology so rigidly that they're going to say, you can't drink kombucha and sauerkraut. Oh, you might as well throw that out. That's fermented cabbage. You can't have that. You know, what about sourdough bread? What about, um, diet Mountain Dew? There's a chemical in diet Mountain Dew that can lead to intoxication. If it's consumed in a high enough quantity, you would have to drink. I think it's 47 cans of Mountain Dew within three minutes in order for that to happen. But that's a possibility. You can blow a positive breathalyzer. Joey after Chestnut probably Dew. can do it. Joey yeah, Chestnut. He- I bet he could do it. Well, he might be able to, but anyway, I digress. You're going to get me going. You're going to get me going here, but this line of reasoning doesn't work because one drink drunk, it means that the intention to me, that's the biggest difference between consuming alcohol medicinally and consuming it with intent to get drunk. If I'm drinking that hot toddy, I have no intent on getting drunk. I drink that and that alcohol is enough of a catalyst with those other things that I'm consuming to have its medicinal work done. 
There are some people that have kidney disease drinking one beer a day. A lot of urologists will recommend that people drink a beer a day, depending on what kind of kidney disease they have, because it's good for their kidneys. It helps their kidneys cleanse and flush the the other impurities that may accumulate in the body because alcohol has a diuretic effect. It makes you need to pee a lot. And so what, I, what I'm hearing based upon what you're saying is the, the one drink drunk argument is is not very good. It's absolutely ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And anyone that uses that argument, in my opinion, they're resting and torturing the scriptures to say something they don't say. And they're making an argument that flies in the face of common sense. And they're also making an argument that flies in the face of, of what we know about biochemistry. It says it's a bad argument. So there's there's another argument that is is similar to that, and it almost probably could fall under the same category, but just for clarity's sake, I want to ask it as separately. And that is, it's the argument that it can lead to something bad. That it, it may not be wrong in and of itself, but if it can lead to something bad, then you really don't need to be be participating. So, for example, I once heard a preacher he preached a sermon against social drinking by asking a really just a plethora of questions. He said, how many people have ever become drunkards without first drinking alcohol? And, and he said, do you know how many car wrecks have happened because of alcohol? Do you know how many families have been negatively impacted because of alcohol? But similar to the arguments you just basically not just refuted, but, but killed, resurrected and killed some more. (laughs) The problem with this argument is that it's dealing with the abuse of alcohol it's not talking about the proper moderate use because you could ask the same questions for for any other issue really for example do you know how many people have become addicted to medicine and painkillers without first taking it do you know how many car wrecks have happened because of people who are texting on their smartphones do you know how many families have been negatively impacted because of computers that are now in everyone's homes and because of that, people are now working more from home and that's taking away from family time and taking away from opportunities for families to be together because it's more opportunity to work. None of those things are wrong. Working's not wrong. Having a smartphone is not wrong. Taking medicine to, to especially when it comes to painkillers, if you've just gone through surgery, none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. Just like there's nothing wrong with, with, with alcohol. It's when you abuse it. It's when you take something that's not wrong and abuse it, that becomes wrong. And so anything can lead to something bad if we don't use it appropriately or in moderation. So once again, I I like to say the abuse of something does not condemn the use of something. But there's in going with this, sometimes people use 1 Thessalonians 5.22 and they really miss, I won't say misquote it. They just have a bad translation our understanding of what 1 Thessalonians 5.22 actually says, because most of the time people use this word or this phrase where it says, you need to abstain from all appearances of evil. Well, when you look at the idea of abstaining from all appearances of evil, that makes it sound like I don't need to do anything, even if it appears that it's wrong. Even if it's not wrong, if it could appear that it's wrong, I don't need to be involved in it. There's a problem with that, Lee, and that is Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he chose to keep certain company. We see this in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. So if 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is saying that we need to always stay away from anything that could ever make someone accuse us of being wrong, 
then what that passage is doing is it's putting the power not in our own control, but in somebody else's control. Because anything technically could look wrong. Someone could always accuse somebody else of doing something wrong, no matter what they're doing. So clearly, when we look at Luke 7.34, and we see Jesus as being accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he publicly ate with the sinners and tax collectors, Jesus wasn't wrong for doing that because Jesus wasn't actually doing anything wrong himself. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 actually does not say that you can never do anything that could possibly appear wrong. The word used there literally means types and forms, not appearances. And that's a huge difference in translation. So yeah. the Bible's not saying never do anything that could possibly look wrong, because in that case, you really can't do anything, because, I mean, technically anything could, could look wrong, according to somebody. What it's saying is anything that is, a, that is actually wrong, anything that is actually evil, you don't need to participate in. Well, is alcohol in and of itself wrong? Well, that's circular reasoning to say yes, because you haven't first proven that, right? So until someone first proves that alcohol in and of itself is wrong or sinful, 1 Thessalonians 5 22 cannot come into play because there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that alcohol in and of itself is ever considered evil. But there's another argument that I want you to address, Lee, and that's the the it can harm your body or brain argument or that it's not good for you argument. So how do you address that when someone says, okay, well, maybe... Maybe you can drink a, a beer or a glass of wine without getting drunk. And, and, and maybe, yeah, you can go and, and, and drink and uh, that not be wrong and sinful. But the fact that it can harm your body or it can harm your brain, it's not good for you, Lee. Isn't that good enough reason that we shouldn't be doing it? How would you address that? Well, I would say that if you consume enough alcohol that it overrides your biochemical ability to process it, and here's what people don't like about this explanation is that that's subjective and we don't like subjective answers in our Christian subcultures. We don't like that. We like objective, hardline, black and white answers and anything that's subjective, we tend to frown upon. But I would say that if you're consuming enough that your body can't metabolize it and clear it before it accumulates in your brain, well, then it's really not harming your brain at all. But there are also plenty of medicinal uses. I mean, saying that it can harm you and it's not good for you. Well, didn't Paul himself say that you can take a little wine for your stomach's sake and not often infirmities? So we even have the Bible confirming and telling us that there is something good to be found in alcohol. And then also in one of the Psalms, I can't remember which ones, um, but it says that wine is given to gladden the heart of man. And it's, it's one of those things where wine is considered a blessing. All of these things have to be taken on an individual basis, you might say. And whenever we begin to make hard and fast rules about, oh, no, it's bad for you, whatever else. Well, is it really? Let's look at what the evidence actually says. And when we look at what the evidence actually says, it's still recommended even to this day that a glass of wine can, you know, one glass of wine a night can help with heart health. You know, a, a beer can help with kidney function. There are certain instances in which alcohol can actually be good for you. So to make a blanket statement, say it's bad for you and it's not good for you and it causes harm. It's not really a valid argument because it's a blanket statement that doesn't apply in all cases. Now it can certainly be bad, but it also is inconsistent to vilify alcohol while we 
readily consume massive amounts of sugar. Sugar's way worse for us than alcohol could ever be. And you just take a look at the obesity epidemic that exists in this country. And I'm, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. I'm not trying to call anyone out. I'm trying to be respectful with this, but, but the facts are the facts. Remember you think about public health, alcoholism and drunkenness is definitely a blight on public health. It's a bad thing, but that's like you said earlier, that's the abuse of it. Whenever we look at the obesity epidemic that exists in our country and in our culture, And then you look at that and you see that that's prevalent within our churches as well. We see preachers and Christians that struggle with obesity and a lack of self-control and and pointing that finger at anybody. I've got three pointing back at me. I've gotten off my meal prep and I'm getting fluffy again and I don't like it. I've got to do some work to to get better about that. Dude, if you're fluffy, I'm like the marshmallow man. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but whenever it comes to eating, we have way more of a struggle with that in the church than we do with alcohol. Well, we'll and, even joke about it. That that's what's that's what's ironic. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I remember and once again, you know, we're we're speaking about things that are extremely sensitive and and, and we don't need we, you know, right now I'm overweight myself. So as Lee pointed out, I mean I this isn't something where we're trying to dismiss the argument or we're trying to mock anybody. We're just looking at reality here. And and that is, I, there was a guy, and I mean, he was a good 350, 400 pounds, and and he was preaching, and he talked about, you know, how he's glad that we're not fat, we're not Christians who fast today in our culture, and that you know he loves, and this is this was in his one of his lessons, he was actually saying this, and he oh was wow, talking, he was talking about how he can't wait for the, you know, for the fellowship meal afterwards, and you know, I'm just thinking to myself, and he's talking about how much he's going to eat and that, you know, he hopes that that people bring enough food so he can have, you know, enough plates and stuff. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, and by the way, the same preacher condemns people who drink one glass of wine. <clears throat> and yet here he is, who is, is extremely unhealthy. Um, he's told me how unhealthy he is. He's on all sorts of medications. Um, he's a young, he's not an older man either. He's a younger man. Um, and yet he doesn't even see the inconsistency in this argument here, you know, that yeah. if, if, if your reasoning for condemning alcohol is that it's not healthy, but yet people who are drinking alcohol are a lot healthier than you are, that's probably not going to be a good argument to use. No, no. I mean, look at the vegan movement, look at plant-based diets that are out there. And that's the thing. It's not about a lack of information. I mean, we have all the information in the world right here at our fingertips. Everyone knows that a carrot is going to be better for you than a handful of Cheez-Its. Everyone knows that a stalk of broccoli is going to be better for you than, you know, a can of Dr. Pepper. I mean, it's, 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 it's really not that hard. It, well, let me, let me rephrase that. It's not that hard to understand, but it can be really hard to put into practice. And I mean, I'll admit that firsthand. Yeah. To, but, to condemn alcohol on the basis that it isn't good for you, only to down a box of cheese puffs followed by a Dr. Thunder. I mean, that's just, just hypocritical, it's you know? Hypocrisy. And we're not trying to condemn, you know, the dollar menu at McDonald's or anything like that, but it's this idea that it's just bad for you is a blanket statement. Alcohol, that is. It's an oversimplification of the issue. Now, it can certainly be bad for some people. There are some people that do need to avoid it. If they have that propensity for addiction, if they have, you know, a familial history of liver disease or something like that, well, then, yeah, you're, you're better off if you avoid it. And frankly, I think really in general, we're better off if we avoid it. But where I have changed on this is I'm not comfortable calling 
In fact, I won't call the general consumption of alcohol in moderation in a recreational sense, even though I myself don't drink, I'm not going to call it a sin because the Bible doesn't call it a sin. And I do think it's a good idea to abstain. That's my personal opinion on it, but I'm not going to, you know, jump down someone's throat because they have a glass of wine with their, with their meal. I'm just not going to do that. So, you know, if we're going to talk about all of these things and we can just keep going and going and going because this kind of gets into my wheelhouse when it comes to nutrition and science and things like that. But the question is, is moderate alcohol consumption a sin? Is it a sin? I used to believe it was. I no longer believe that it is because the Bible never teaches that moderate alcohol consumption is a sin. Well, I think it is a sin, and I think you're going to go to hell. For, for di- even even if you don't drink, you're going to go to hell because you hold a wrong conclusion. I'm guilty of thought crime, Kevin. I'm uh, guilty of thought crime. It's I am. I am just kidding. Um, <laughs> do, do I believe it's a sin? Absolutely not. Um, you know why would the Bible condemn drunkenness if drinking wasn't taking place? You know, today we go to the grocery store, and there are just all sorts of different kinds of drinks, right? All sorts of different kinds of sodas and all kinds of different types of juices and just different concoctions that we've created for kids and, you know, and just all sorts of different things, right? Gatorade and every, all sorts of different sports drinks. Back then, this is what you had to drink, wine and, and, and water, water. <laughs> and, you milk. know, milk, you know, I, I don't know how popular that was to actually drink as much as, as water and wine, but you had water and wine. And that was just what you had. And as Lee pointed out, they didn't have all the knowledge and scientific advances that we have today to say, okay, this is at this point is when something has enough alcohol in it. And this is, and by the way, that's when the buy, especially in the book of Proverbs talks a lot about being careful in mixing certain drinks to get a certain higher alcohol level, because certainly when we, when we're talking about, is it wrong to drink alcohol? I want to be careful that we're not saying tonight, go out to the, to a bar because Kevin and Lee said it's okay to drink alcohol. There, there still has to be wisdom taken into account here, but that's not the issue. The issue is, does the Bible teach that drinking alcohol is wrong? Is it a sin? Of course not. In fact, that's what people would have been doing. That's why the Bible's saying, don't drink too much. Why? Well, if you drink too much, you're going to get drunk. You know, I, I use this illustration that a mother would only give her daughter a curfew for the night if her daughter was going to be going out that night. A curfew to be back home at a certain time wouldn't be needed if the girl or her daughter wasn't going to be going out that night. So in the same way, why would the Bible condemn the abuse of an already condemned action? If drinking in of itself is a sin, then it would be futile to condemn drunkenness. The Bible would just say, don't drink, don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. It wouldn't say, don't get drunk. Um, There are passages, by the way, that do speak of restricting moderate drinking altogether in specific circumstances. This concept alone assumes that others would be drinking moderately in normal circumstances. For example, consider the Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. When under this vow, one could not drink strong drink, Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Well, the word for strong drink here means fermented or intoxicating drink. So if, if nobody was ever drinking fermented drinks in any sense to begin with, then what would be the point of taking this vow if you were already doing it? Uh, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't set you apart in any way. 
if, if, oh, wow, part of this vow is I can't drink alcohol. Well, guess what? I can't drink it anyway. So sure, I'll take the vow. <laughs> what good sense does that make? I so, never thought about that, man. Well, That's and, really interesting, but I I think it's right. Well, it would be when you look at the, the other parts of the vow, right? Like not cutting your hair. Okay. So that would imply then that normally guys were cutting their hair. Well, if I'm arguing that guys never cut their hair, you would take me to the Nazarite Val and say, well, Kevin, part of the reason why we can know that guys were cutting their hair is because if you take this vow, you can't cut their hair. That implies people are cutting their hair. So the fact that we see these restrictions on drinking in place prove that drinking was something done under normal circumstances. Um, the fact of the matter that passages restrict moderate drinking in other places, for example, we see this in 1 Timothy 3.8 and Titus 2.3 about not giving too much wine. That's not talking about grape juice. It's talking about alcoholic wine. And I asked, I remember I was in preaching school. And uh, when I was in school, I asked one of my, uh, I guess one of my professors at that time, why he believed that it was wrong based upon these passages. Because I believed it was wrong, but these passages were giving me a difficult time. And he said, well, he goes, the Bible there is just saying you don't need to drink too much grape juice. And I'm saying, you really think that's what the Bible there is saying? Don't don't drink too much grape juice here, you know. You women don't 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 be get, don't drinking too much grape juice, you know. And elders, you can't drink any grape juice, but you deacons, you can have a little bit of grape juice, but none of y'all need to get carried away with 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 your grape juice too much. That makes absolutely no sense. It's talking about alcoholic wine because that's all the only kind of wine. I mean, that's what they understood and knew is alcoholic wine. So uh, another thing that's interesting, you know, I love studying the early church. And we know that the early church was using alcoholic wine in their Lord's Supper. Um, some people point to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about some people getting drunk, uh, which ironically enough, by the way, Lee, let me point an inconsistency out here on the side. We talked about turning water into wine in our last episode. And one of the points we talked about is how some people point to the phrase, well drunk. And while that word can certainly mean that someone is under the influence, it could also just mean that they had their fill, right? That's not really the common usage. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, the same thing applies. People say, well, people really weren't actually drunk in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul's rebuking them for abusing the Lord's Supper. He's just saying they, that they had their fill. Yeah. They just had their fill. So they were being, once again, that's kind of picking and choosing what definition you want, not based upon context, but, but based upon your preconceived. Reception. Yeah, exactly. So either way, as and, and if you want to know more about that, because we basically kind of left that up to being either or in um, in our last podcast. And I'll do the same thing with First Corinthians 11. I'm not going to sit here and say we know that there were people who are actually getting literally drunk. This could have just meant, once again, just they were drinking and um, more than they should have or or they were they were um, abusing the Lord's Supper and maybe they weren't actually drunk. Either way, though, we know that they were drinking alcoholic wine at the Lord's Supper. We see this not only contextually, but also just historically. Even one early group of Christians in the second century known as the Incratites, we talked about them on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They were an ascetic Christian sect. And these Christians, they oppose marriage, they oppose the eating of any kind of meat, and also the drinking of any kind of intoxicating beverages. Now this in and of itself is interesting because they separated themselves from uh, the other Christians. Because the other Christians were drinking intoxicating beverages, and they believed that you shouldn't at all. In fact, they even substituted milk or water in place of wine for communion because the communion that Christians used was always alcoholic. So 
Is there any reason to believe that it is wrong, that alcohol in and of itself is sinful? When I, when, when, when just looking at the Bible, looking at the reality of what they did, and, and my answer is absolutely not. There's no case that can be made to prove alcohol is universally sinful. Now, in some cases, as Lee pointed out at the beginning, yeah, you don't need to drink. There are some people who don't need to do it at all, but that doesn't have anything to do with alcohol in and of itself. That would have to do with the individual in a case-by-case study. Yeah. And it's, I, and I'm in lockstep with you on this one. I'm, I can't condemn that practice because the Bible doesn't condemn it. And whenever we condemn it, we need to be careful because this type of argumentation where we cherry pick, we pick and choose how we're going to apply certain words and we pick and choose how we're going to make this application. And we're doing so to make it fit that preconception. Um, a lot of times, and it really does come from noble purposes. It really does. I mean, back whenever I was still operating under that legalistic mindset, I wasn't sitting here thinking, all right, now how can I really put the screws to my brethren? How can I really make life hard for them? Oh, I know. I'm going to look at it this way. No, it was a desire to, you know, uphold what I believe to be absolute truth. And it's real similar to how the Pharisees added their laws to the Sabbath. They were trying to protect the people from violating God's laws. So they made their own traditions in addition to God's laws. And in doing so, they even condemned Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with making that personal choice that's a wise choice. I personally believe that it is a wise choice to abstain from alcohol. I believe that that is the best course of action to take. But it's altogether different to make that a binding law that God didn't bind and to bind that on others and to condemn everybody that doesn't do it the same way I do or who hasn't studied to the same point that I have. To do so is to go beyond what is written. To do so is not to rightly divide the word of truth. And whenever we do that, we start treading on some mighty, mighty, mighty thin ice. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. We get to the point where we begin making laws that God didn't make, and usually it comes from a good place. I know that a lot of people who teach against alcohol, they they do so because they don't want people falling into a lot of these traps. But in trying to trying to create boundaries and trying to create these added laws where people won't drink, they themselves have fallen into a different kind of trap, a trap of legalism. And, and that's the problem here is that we're not in favor of anyone being a victim of alcohol. We're not in favor of anyone abusing alcohol. We're not in favor of anyone getting drunk. We're not in favor of anyone partying, partying and, and because, you know, going out to party on a, on a Friday or Saturday night and getting, getting wasted. That's not what we're promoting here. What we're talking about is the Bible specifically and what it says about wine and historically how Christians dealt with that. And there's really just nothing found in Scripture where one could take the position that it's sinful. As Lee pointed out, one, one can take the position that they don't feel it's wise, but even then that's a personal choice. Um, one, one may take the position that it's, it's wise to be a vegan. Uh, and that's their personal choice. I have talked to other, many people who uh, have have believed that as Christians, Christians shouldn't be eating certain foods because now we have the knowledge that they're not good for us. In fact, a lot of what we're eating is not even food. <laughs> it's yeah. literally not even food. And so people believe that we shouldn't be doing that. And that's fine. That's within the realm of personal conviction that they need to hold uphold for themselves and live by. But when we begin to make rules and laws 
where God didn't and try to take certain principles that really aren't there, but to, to twist them so that we can try to make a law in order to keep people from drinking. We're no better off at that point as far as God's concerned as the person who is going out and getting drunk because we're doing something just as wrong by creating laws that aren't there just as they're breaking laws that are there. Absolutely. And that in and of itself is what we really have to be on watch for, especially myself coming out of that legalistic mold. Sometimes it's easy for those old habits to creep back up, but that's the beauty of God's grace because as we lean into his grace and as we begin to learn more about his grace, we are changed and we are transformed. And many of those old habits, even though they die hard, they eventually succumb and the sun sets on them as we always try to be more like Jesus and model ourselves after him, making him our ultimate example that we follow. So do you have anything else that you want to add to this? We actually kept it under an hour. That's two in a row that are less than an hour. How about it? See, it's our intent. It's our purpose. When we, when we know what we're trying to do, then we can, we can keep it in moderation. There you go. There you go. Once again, we want to thank everyone for listening. We're really looking forward to what we have coming up. Um, we'll be getting into a multi-part section. We'll go ahead and spill the beans here. We're going to be covering in uh, the next few episodes a multi-part study and discussion on Calvinism which is a really interesting uh, theological system. It's not one that I ascribe to. It's not one that Kevin ascribes to, but it's one that we want to explore. And we're going to have a guest on that is well-versed in Calvinism. He is a Calvinist. He does believe in that particular framework. And it will be really interesting to uh, visit with him. And we're really looking forward to having him on. So we hope that you guys will join us for that. Also, please share this podcast with your friends, like us on Facebook, follow our Facebook page, engage with us, holler at us, let us know what you want to hear about. Reach out to us with your struggles. We've heard from so many of you, and it's so encouraging to know what kind of difference we're making in the lives of our brethren. So thank you all. We love you all. God bless and good night.